Hey everyone. First off, we at The Familiar Strange want to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose lands we are recording this podcast and pay our respect to the elders of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples, past and present. And we would also like to acknowledge the Wathorong people of the Kulin Nation and pay our respects to their elders, past and present. All right, let's go. Hello and welcome to The Familiar Strange, brought to you with support from the Australian Anthropological Society, the Australian National University's College of Asia and the Pacific, and the College of Arts and Social Sciences, produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association, and coming to you from our homes still, but with assistance from the Australian Centre for the Public Awareness of Science. I'm Alex, your familiar stranger for today. I'm here with my fellow familiar strangers, Carolyn. Hello. Joe. Hello. And our newest TFS member, Ruana. Hi, guys. How are you doing, Ruana? I'm good. How are you? Not too bad. Before we dive into today's discussion, did you know that we have a Facebook chats group? Join us on the Familiar Strange Chats on Facebook and provide some valuable insight on today's episode. So, Ruana, our newest TFS member and another PhD student at the ANU. Can you tell us a little bit about your research? I'm sure the audience is going to be really curious. Yeah, sure. I do my research in Tibet, the one in Chinese part, and it's about the coexistence of Tibetan medicine and biomedicine and how people are living and working in these two systems. And are you able to give us just a brief intro into Tibetan medicine? Tibetan medicine considers that the human body and the universe are both made by five elements of soil, fire, water, wind, and space. And in that case, the outer universe and the inner universe of the body is connected. And when people get like illness or get discomfort, it's because these elements are imbalanced in a way, or like one element is too strong, the other is too weak, or they are not in suitable situation. And this is the general theory of Tibetan medicine. So I was wondering, we recently published a blog by Alyssa Denise Chua on the relationship between traditional medicine and biomedicine in the Philippines. And one of the things she talks about is how, in her family's experience, people would move between the two systems, depending on what was available and what was useful at the time. I'm wondering if in your fieldwork, you've seen something similar happening? Yeah, in, in my fieldwork, I think because I focus on the medical professionals, but like I do see people make different choice when they come to the hospitals to seek help. Also, Tibetan medicine is kind of like famous in people's minds of curing chronic disease. So older people uh, in general have like uh, high blood pressure or diabetes or joints problems. They tend to come to Tibetan medicine system to seek help. But like when it comes to emergency situations or surgical situations, they'll go to the Balbessence Hospital to seek help. And because these two hospitals are both located in the same compounds in the county, so accessibility is quite similar to each other. Patients' accessibility of the resource. The only issue is that sometimes people can't really find the Tibetan medicine hospital because it's 
locates behind the People's Hospital, the Biomedicine Hospital, and also because it's newly founded, so not many people know its existence. If they're located in the same compound, does that mean that the Tibetan Medicine Hospital also receives, like, government funding? They're both public hospitals. See, that I find amazing. Like, I can't imagine the Australian government funding a, I don't know, what would be an equivalent, an Indigenous Australian hospital? Yeah, an alternative medicine hospital. Uh My mom is a nurse, so I have grown up in a very biomedicine environment, I suppose. But I'm quite interested in like the intersection of religion and spirituality with health practices and how they intertwine. So I think what Runan was saying earlier about how Tibetan medicine kind of sees the body and like the mind and this internal world and this external world as being one and the same almost. And if something is wrong outside, there's possibly something wrong inside. And I like the way that that like interplays with each other. Yeah. Like, look, as somebody who I was brought up like super atheist, I've always struggled a bit with a lot of alternative medicine practice. And yet at the same time, going through anthropology, you start to realize how essential these practices are to people's sense of self. And that, if, even if you have a very pragmatic mind, often they have quite good outcomes, even if it's for reasons we don't understand, because they encourage us to pay attention to a whole lot of other factors that Western biomedicine traditionally either traditionally doesn't or because of its current sort of capitalist form kind of doesn't, where it's like we need to pump as many people through in 10-minute bulk build GP sessions as possible and you will take the next doctor available. I wonder, though, in places that have completely socialized healthcare that doesn't have a private setting but does have a biomedicine basis, do you not see the same, I suppose, Mm. coldness in personality at times? And I think it comes more from the sort of history of biomedicine and the medicalization of the patient as a patient before they are a person. It seems that part of the appeal of these folk or alternative medicines is that they escape the sort of medical medicizing gaze and approach you primarily as a person yeah i think that's spot on i think i never really thought about it like that so i think that was a really good way of putting it that you're a person before mm. you're a patient because you're right after you started to correct me on the like capitalism thing i'm like no wait a minute in capitalism if you've got the money you can absolutely buy very nice personalized healthcare. do you know what i mean whereas the times I've had to either go to a bulk billing clinic or it's not even a bulk billing clinic. I've just been in a hurry and I've had to see whatever doctor. You're right. It's not a personal thing. I was going to say, I think what's really interesting is that in many ways, the patient is almost emblematic of the symptoms that they either show or describe. And that was something that my mum taught me when going to doctor's appointments is the doctors can only sort of problem solve and, and diagnose you like as effectively as you can sort of communicate those symptoms. So it's, you're not even really a person, you're a set of symptoms and a set of problems that can be reduced to, you know, sometimes a lot of different like diagnoses or maybe just like one or two. And I think you definitely get that experience going to bulk build places where they aren't aware of your emotional history as much as a, like a regular GP. I think the other thing is these are problems that are difficult enough when you're trying to do it in your first language. And one of the things that doctors regularly report on is the difficulty in diagnosing and assessing and how much pain someone is because of the absolute the absolute variance in personal experience from that. I think that's why like accessible language is so important in these sorts of situations like I was in the emergency department a few years ago for a really bad bout of tonsillitis 
and instead of asking me how painful it was based on like from giving birth to uh, to getting stung by a bee, it was more along the lines of is this the most pain that you have ever experienced and like 10 being the most, one being the least and then I could use that scale and they could sort of assess how I felt about it. But even then, like a paper cut is one of the most painful things I've ever experienced. Like, <laughs> yeah. and I've bro- and I've broke and I have broken Plus. bones, right? <laughs> you saw uh, until until your tonsils are like totally like stopping you from being able to breathe and swallow anything, like I don't know. No, man. I've given myself major <laughs> second degree burns. I have broken bones, but f- me, just like a bad paper cut is like. <laughs> Well, the other thing I want to mention, though, just to go back to person before patients, is there's a book by Cooper called State of Health, talking about the Venezuelan healthcare system under Chavez, basically before things started to go poorly for Venezuela, where they got in a heap of Cuban doctors. And it was interesting because those Cuban doctors got a really good reputation in Venezuela, to the point where lots of lower middle class and below Venezuelans much preferred Cuban doctors to Venezuelan doctors because they thought the Cuban doctors, this is not alternative traditional medical practice because apparently, you know, I have no way of judging this. A lot of Venezuelans said by Venezuelan doctors, they were treated really like you said, Carolyn, just like a bundle of symptoms and nothing more. And it was get in, get out, etc., etc. Whereas the Cuban doctors had a much more holistic way of doing it. Again, not particularly spiritual, but just a lot of the philosophy is taking time, know your patients. Like you should be out in the community getting to know your community. Yeah, I was thinking about like uh, this seeking of alternative medicine the reason why people seeking alternative medicine uh, system because sometimes like illness or disease are not only a physical situation mostly it links to people's mindsets to the whole living context the social economy system and i remember like once i start to feel like Tibetan medicine is the only medicine system that is alternative in Tibet autonomous region. So I was like asking around, is there possibly another way people see different kind of doctors? And then figure out later that there's a kind of like waste doctor and she could see the patients for some small skin problems, small issues. But also she can do fortune telling in a way. Because I was like totally healthy. So what should I ask? Um, my friends suggest me that you probably could ask where you should live in the future. In Tibet or in inland China or in abroad. I was like, okay, that sounds good. So I went to so I asked her and her her reply is that living in Tibet is quite chill for you. Living abroad is quite happy for you too, but it's going to be really hard. And she didn't mention the living in inland part, China part. So I guess that would be like the best choice. That's not an option. <laughs> but, but that situation is kind of like telling me, okay, these so-called doctors not only cure your body in a way, but also sometimes giving giving guidance to lost lambs. Well, I'm afraid I'm going to have to give some guidance to these lost lambs and <laughs> move us on to the next section. So, Joe, what are you thinking about this week? So this week, I've been thinking about malls and shopping centres as expressions of social ideas, especially around consumption and class. 
So one of the things that sort of come up in just some general reading I've been doing is the first mall in Indonesia, which was opened by the independence leader and first president, Sukarno, which is a mall called uh, Serena. It's um, interesting because it challenges a few of the typical ideas we have about malls as these places of, I guess, suburban capitalist consumption. So Serena was actually based off the department stores that were present in a lot of the Soviet bloc and the former USSR countries. And it was set to actually control prices and this idea that the social spectacle of Serena would be so grand that no one would dare to sell prices higher than what was in this mall. So if the state would set the price of a shirt at, I don't know, let's just say $10, no one would then dare to sell the same shirt for $20 somewhere else. So it was hoped that it would actually bring Indonesia's inflation under control. Um, didn't work. <laughs> that was going to be my next question. <laughs> I, I'm not sure it was a particularly wise move in terms of monetary policy, but it is interesting from an anthropological perspective because it kind of, I guess, challenges these ideas of shopping malls as just spaces of conspicuous consumption and unbridled capitalism. So, Joe, no, what you were saying is really interesting because I don't know if you know the first, it's debatable, but like the first acknowledged sort of shopping mall was designed by a socialist. Shopping centres have socialist roots. This guy, Victor Gruen, from Vienna, Austria, who self-identified as a socialist, he designed this shopping centre in America and it was supposed to bring, like, metropolitan European values by sort of being very pedestrian and having a place for the community to sort of be integrated and the shopping was supposed to not necessarily be the primary reason to be there. And, as is the way of these things, a whole lot of developers said, hey... That is a great way to sell a whole lot of stuff. Let's like put these in the suburbs and sell lots of things. So your idea that they're designed with a different purpose in mind is actually kind of really in the history of the shopping center. And I think the relocation to the suburbs is very interesting, especially in the Mm. United States where often suburbs don't have shared social spaces like town centers, piazzas, or community places where Lots of people can go and engage and meet one another. So the shopping mall becomes a sort of stand-in, I think, for a lot of those communities. At the at the same time, to like fast forward to modern Australian suburban uh, shopping malls, I've been thinking a lot about the role of shopping malls and shopping centres in suburban areas, specifically in Geelong, because Geelong is going through a really big growth period for you, Runan. Um, Geelong is like the second biggest city in Victoria after Melbourne, about an hour away. So my, my, fam- my family, my extended family currently live in Geelong and I finished high school there and I've seen it explode over the past sort of like 10, 11 years that my family's been based there. There's suburbs being built that are the size of about 100,000 people. So obviously there's a lot of infrastructure that's going up in order to support these population groups and to have these sort of like community centers. So I think within a five kilometer radius of my parents' house, there have been three different shopping malls that have either popped up from nothing or um, have been renovated and extended in the last five years. And what what you see in Geelong is actually that the original sort of town center that's on the water, it's really, really beautiful. There are two main shopping centers there as well, that it's gotten a lot quieter as these amenities have moved out of the central business district. There's less reason for people to go into the city now, so there are more vacant shops. Uh, Parking is more expensive because the council's no longer making as much money off new cars coming in and out. 
there's a real lack of public transport to get people from suburbs into the city centre. It's only really like mainly to the, the closest centre. And it's also just interesting thinking about the way in which suburban shopping centres and shopping malls are sort of talked about within the community and talked about in a digital context through social media versus like shopping centers in Melbourne like Chadston or Melbourne Central or Emporium and the the ways in which like the shopping center is like a privately owned enterprise but kind of a public space. And I think the best comedic rendering of that tension is probably in Kath and Kim. If you think of how they deal with Fountain Gate and how that's the center of a lot of their social lives but it's also this place where you sort of have to demonstrate your consumption and your ability to perform your middle-classness in a way that's very specific to Melbourne and Australia more broadly. Well, this is the thing. It, it both is specific and isn't. The, the specific ways Kath and Kim does it, for American listeners, just go watch Kath and Kim. But nevertheless, <laughs> it's both specific and not. So I am reading at the moment El Mall by Aline Davila, who is talking about shopping centres in Latin America. And she makes a big argument that shopping centres, as we've been discussing, have this weird tension between ostensibly kind of democratic spaces that anyone can go to, and yet really contested sites of class differentiation. And as you sort of said, Joe, a large part of being in a shopping centre is kind of proving that you belong. And that's a big marker of difference between some of the really high-end shopping centres and some of the lower-end shopping centres. The lower-end shopping centres, she says have more reasons just kind of to hang out and not necessarily spend money. Whereas the more expensive ones, it's harder to just chill and not spend money. And so just being in that space starts to determine who you are as a class, classed subject. To be honest, in those higher level shopping malls, if you go there without shopping or without spending money, you will feel a bit awkward sometimes it's like mm. uh yeah everyone's like spending here i don't fit in and in that case there will be like this atmosphere that built by distinguished class or money to to push people to spend at least a coffee to show that yeah i could be here i have the right to be here i think architecture as well as the layout of shopping malls really dictates that atmosphere. So I've been doing a little bit of research on some of the shopping malls in Melbourne since we kind of came up with what we we're going to talk about this week. And I looked at the floor plans for Melbourne Central, Emporium and Chadston. And what I found was very interesting. So this is very Melbourne centric. Chadston which is the biggest, I think it's like one of the biggest shopping malls and it's definitely the biggest one in Australia, but it's definitely like marketed as the fashion capital. But I was looking at their floor plan today and where all of the main entrances are in the store, which is the ground level, is where all of the luxury stores are. So what I thought was interesting about that was this, the idea that the first thing when consumers walk into Chadston or where the majority of consumers will walk into Chadston is right next to like, Chanel, Tiffany, Ralph Lauren, all of these very high expensive stores to find the more the different level consumer stores you have to go down a floor so they're not the first ones that you walk past so it initially sets the tone of what you're going to see, how you see it, how you engage with it when you walk in. I think that's also really similar to the idea of 
that we were talking about a little earlier of the public space but also the private space in a way because also there are other ways that like shopping centers will engage with people because really like no one really wants to go to a shopping center normally you want to go to the the specific stores in the shopping center so how does a shopping center market have you itself? never been a listless team that's I what i was about to bring to up alex <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. As, were you as a loiterer joe <laughs> well i was gonna say i think the thing we haven't spoken about is the age dimension of this right is that for a whole generation of people probably born from 1990 onwards maybe earlier going and hanging out at the shopping malls is sort of a way of performing your adolescence for a lot of people in suburban areas and it's also it's a way of sort of performing your maturity and it's also often as i think you were saying earlier caroline with like the redesigning of the cities it's often one of the only public places where everyone can conveniently meet which says a lot about how we design our urban environments and what purposes we're expecting them to serve yeah mm. i think i think that's reflected quite interestingly in some of the shopping centers i was looking at this week because after i sort of looked at their sort of what stores they were carrying i looked at what their instagrams reflected and who their target audience was <laughs> and um Melbourne Central is very much more geared to that Gen Z kind of younger teenage group of people. And there are more spaces in Melbourne Central to loiter and hang out in. There's free Wi-Fi. There are like little co-working tables. It's a it's kind of like a bigger mall anyway with like more kind of dead space as well, I'd say. And the train centre's in there. So it is, like Alex, you were saying, it's very much geared to be this central meeting point for a lot of people if you don't want to go down to like Flinders Street. Whereas the other uh, shopping malls that I, were looking, I was looking at were more geared towards people who had a lot of money to spend, kind of status of being seen at Chadston, for example, and making a day out of it and that sort of thing. So, hmm. yeah. Well, also getting to Chatty as a teenager is a pain in the ass. <laughs> Can't relate. Yeah. I didn't sorry, I, sorry. I grew up in the southeastern <laughs> suburbs. That's actually my neck of the woods. Like, yeah. it's it's not on public transport. Like, there's a few bus lines. Oh, I think I'm it not... might be now. And the place, the shopping mall I locate right now, is actually in the same situation. There's barely much to public transport, but people hmm. come by driving, which hmm. is their own car which makes the class even higher. Exactly. That's something we might think a lot about in Australia, the US, countries where car ownership is so high. But in Latin America and a lot of other countries, a place that you can only get to by car is just like an automatic class filter. Yeah. Mm. Right there and then. That really is all we've got time for this week. And we'll have to call it there. But thank you very much for listening in. Thank you very much for being on the show, Joe. Thank you. Thanks, Carolyn. Thank you. And thanks for appearing on your first panel, Ruina. Thank you. And I'm Alex, your host. Today's episode was produced by all of us at The Familiar Strange, and our executive producer is the wonderful Matthew Fong. Subscribe to The Familiar Strange podcast. You can find us on iTunes and all the other familiar places, including Spotify. And if you'd like to support us, please check out our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash The Familiar Strange. Not The Strange Familiars, which is another fun podcast, just not ours. You can find the show notes, including a list of all the books and papers mentioned today, plus our blog about anthropology's role in the world at thefamiliarstrange.com. If you want to contribute to the blog or have anything to say to myself or the other hosts of this show, email us at submissions at thefamiliarstrange.com, tweet at TFS Tweets, or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Music by Pete Dabro. 
Special thanks to Nick Farrelly, Will Grant, Martin Pierce, and Mordro. Thanks for listening, and until next time, keep talking strange. <laughs>